Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the fool of the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you? Uh, Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. So, the idea of drawing near and listening, I find is one that in our culture today is particularly difficult because we are so saturated with information and entertainment and every kind of gizmo and gadget that serves to distract us. And so the idea of actually drawing near and listening, making space to listen, is something that we don't do easily. We don't make space just to listen. And I want to start the, this uh, talk by telling a story. So when I was in my 30s, I took a bike trip, and I was riding through Europe, and I was just by myself, and I was pulling a trailer, and it was a very interesting time for me, because I had no idea many times where I was going. I had a map, and I would pull that out on occasion, and I would be like, where am I going? I'm not too sure, but I guess I'll go to this town, and I would, you know, circle it on my map, and and I would just start heading that direction, but occasionally... The map that I had was not, you know, it didn't zero in close enough, and I would get lost. And I would be looking for anything, you know, a signpost or, you know, some sort of indicator that I was going in the right direction. And when you're in that situation, when you're lost, if you guys can relate to this, the last thing you want to do is spend your energy going in the wrong direction. And so you slow down. You're like, hold on a second, hold on. And you start going slow because you don't want to throw effort after foolishness. You don't want to spin your wheels only to find 20 minutes later or 20 miles later that you've been going in the absolute wrong direction. And so on occasion, I would get lost and I would be slowing down because I'm like... Ooh, I don't know if I'm going the right direction. And then, you know, ultimately what would end up happening is I would see a sign that says, you know, to whatever city, and I'd be like, ah, oh, that's on my map, cool. Whew. I'm going in the right direction. And then it's, you know, just like open up the throttle and let it go. And I would just start riding for all I was worth because I was young and strong and I was having fun, and, and why not? You know, God gave me strength. Let's use it. I'm going in the right direction. And so I use that story to 
kind of frame this conversation about how do we make space and listen so that we don't spend effort going in the wrong direction. God gives us a place, a time to exist on the earth, and here we are. What do we do with it? And the writer of Ecclesiastes, he asks these questions because he goes through, and and we're going to walk through a number of these where He's looking at the world, and he sees things that are uncomfortable. And he has to take a step back and say, wait a minute, hold on. So with that in mind, let's jump in. The last group that was here, they were all depressed by the time they left, so I'm hoping to inject some levity this time. So so Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward? and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So he has this, the the writer has a dilemma, and I'm sure if you guys are honest, you can relate to this feeling of God will judge, and we have this hope. Somewhere down the road, God is going to bring all this nastiness to light, and the people who have been perpetrating all these evil things and causing all this havoc, they're going to be brought to justice. Right? We kind of hold on to that. We're like, oh, I hope that's true. But then on the other time, we, you know, we see the evil prosper. And they never seem to get in trouble. And they run away with the pretty girl and the fast car and the big mansion. And, you know, you're stuck grumbling because you're all... You're like, maybe, maybe this is... I don't know. Maybe we're just like the animals and nothing happens. Right? So there's this divide. And so he has this conclusion to this dilemma. He says, So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And the question of, what does it mean to enjoy your work? And this is something that I want to investigate just a little bit today, is the idea of the Lord has given us time. You know, we're born We have this span of time, and then we die. And what we do with that time in between the birth and the death, is it meaningless? Does it have importance? Is there purpose behind it? In the middle of that, there's work. And he gives us things to put our hands to. And what does it mean? What do we do with it? Right? So, we continue. Chapter 4. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living 
who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so he's looking, this writer, he's looking and he sees oppression caused by one man's envy of another. It's depressing, like we get that, right? But the idea of the, you know, he sees these people. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no one to comfort them. I saw that the power was on the side of the oppressors. And what are these oppressors doing? What is their work? What are they after? If it's right that this, uh, the, the observation that he makes here that all toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another, these people that are causing the problem, they are chasing after the wind. They are chasing after something, power, money, security, whatever you fill in the blank, and they're using it to try to protect themselves. But in the middle of that process, what they do is they take this thing that was never intended to operate in that fashion of protecting and providing peace or providing um, shalom in the best sense of that word of peace. And they're putting this thing in that place and it's not working and it causes problems. This is what we would call idolatry and we, we are a culture that is uh, big on idol, idols, right? <clears throat> Um, and he goes on from here and he says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So again, we, we have the question of what does it mean to be foolish? On the one hand, we can resign ourselves and say, Eh, it's all meaningless. I'm just going to... I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to relax. I'm fold my hands and just let life pass by. I don't care. Foolish. On the other hand, we have the guy who's like two fists full of straining and striving and chasing after the wind. Also foolish. Better one hand filled with tranquility. And how is the, it's like this idea of the hand, the laborer, what we do, how do we gain um, what it is that the Lord would desire as far as like, what do we do with our work? What do we do with our time? So we continue. This is all going somewhere. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So again, he's looking and he sees this picture of a man who's isolated. He has a talent. 
He's working. He's got wealth. And he has no one to share it with. And you ask the question, well, have you ever known someone who spends so much time working that in essence they are isolated? They're isolated from their wife or their husband. They're isolated from their children, from their community because their focus is so myopic that all they can see is the work that they're doing. And they amass this huge wealth and they don't know how to enjoy it because the people that, with whom they would want to enjoy it are estranged from them because they don't know them because they never spend any time with them. It's a common story. I've seen it again and again and again. As opposed to he, the, the rider, he sees it's good. It's good when you have someone with you. You're walking in the same direction and you're pulling in the same direction because you can help one another and there's community and companionship and warmth. It's beautiful. So he's juxtaposing these things and he's seeing there's something here. This is empty. This has satisfaction. The wealth, not so convinced, but community I like that. Let's go ahead. Let's head this direction. So he's, he's on to that idea. <clears throat> he continues. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher, others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So don't be surprised. I mean, we're, we're not surprised when we see these things. This is, I mean, you all have to do is look at the newspaper and be like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I see that every day. And he goes on, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, is too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are these goods And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats much or little. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So he continues, he sees these these things on these polar extremes. You've got the, the oppressors. They're chasing after something. And you have to ask yourself, how... You know, what motivates me to do what I do? If we don't ask that question, if we don't ask what is framing our understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing, if we don't ask that, then we are like the fool who shows up to offer sacrifices, but we have no idea what we're doing. We're just like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm heading in that direction. Whoever loves money never has enough. There's a, there's a movie called I Am. It was uh, produced by a guy named Tom Shadiak. Uh, he was the producer of the um, Ace Ventura films, if you guys have ever seen any of those. And he made that first film, and he was instantly on the top of his game and made so much money, he had no idea what to do with it. And he tells a story because he what ended up happening to him was he got into a crash. He was riding his bicycle, had a terrible crash, hit his head really hard, and ended up with his brain trauma. And nine of ten people who end up with his particular condition end up committing suicide because the depression is so heavy. And they just don't see a way out of it. And so they, they end it. 
And Tom is in this position, and he's fighting. He's like, I'm trying to understand what's going on. How do I see my way out of this? And so he makes this film, and he, he titled it I Am. And he took the title name from a, an editorial response in the London Times in the turn of the 20th century from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He was a Christian philosopher, writer. And the, the London Times had asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton wrote into them, and it was a simple, short reply. He said, dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. So his answer to the question of what's wrong with the world today, it's me. That was his response. And so Tom, he runs down this road, and he's, uh, he, he ran into this, and he starts thinking of his life, and he recognizes that he had been chasing after the wind. And he starts this, the movie, and he says, I'm going to talk to you about insanity. And when I say that word, you probably are thinking something like this. And he cuts to a scene from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where all they're bouncing off the walls and they're going crazy in the insane asylum. And he says, actually, the insanity that I'm talking about looks more like this. And he cuts to a picture of him with his private jet and his limousine. And he goes on to tell the story of how once he had made his millions, he bought this huge house in Beverly Hills, and it, all the movers had just finished moving everything into the house, filled it, every corner has its object of art and whatever. And he's sitting at the top of this huge spiral staircase, looking at all of the stuff that he had. And he had this very depressing realization that it hadn't budged his appreciation for life one bit. It's like all this stuff, and I don't feel one bit happier. And he's like, that's crazy. What am I doing? Why am I spinning my wheels and spending my life in this direction? Maybe I need to slow down and listen. And that was the project that he undertook. It's a film worth seeing if you guys are ever interested in checking out <clears throat> I Am. But he had to slow down and he had to ask the question, what am I doing? Am I insane? Maybe. And he goes through that question. The writer continues, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? My brother and I, uh, we had been invited to play music in Croatia for this reconciliation conference in the Balkan region. And so I was, like, super excited. Zach was living in Ireland at the time, and I was here in Colorado. And I bought my ticket, and I sent Zach the information. And uh, I get a call from Zach, and he's like, Rob, do you realize that you booked a ticket that has an overnight layover in Frankfurt? I was like, oh, really? 
because all of a sudden that means hotel and extra money and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, ah, oh, really? Dang it. And so Zach's like, well, that's all right. I'll, I'll just book mine the same and we'll, we'll make something happen. So I thought, okay, we got an evening in Frankfurt. Let's do something with it. This will be fun. So I started riding all of these Irish pubs in Frankfurt, and I thought, maybe we can get a gig, and we'll play some music. We'll make a little money, maybe enough to spend the night somewhere, and it'll be fine. So we get to Frankfurt, and we, uh, <laughs> we jump on a train to go to this place. It was the wrong place. There's two of these Irish pubs, and we went to the wrong one. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're in the wrong place. you got to go the way. It's over. Yeah, you got to get on this train and... Fine, so we get on that train, and we're riding, and Frankfurt disappears. And all of a sudden, we're looking at cornfields, and we're we're in the middle of nowhere, and we jump off the train (laughs) at the stop that we're like, oh, this is it, I guess. And we start walking into this little teeny hamlet of a town, and we find this pub. And they're like, oh, you guys made it. That was great. And they gave us some food. And we played music to like six people the whole night. We're like, all right, whatever. And we had no plans. We had no place to stay. And uh, I figured, I was just thinking, well, it's a warm night. If we have to, we can just sleep on the grass somewhere. I don't, you know, it'll be fine. But the, at the end of the evening, the, the lady who ran the pub, she comes up and she says, where are you guys staying tonight? And we're like, oh, we don't have any idea. And I'm kind of, maybe she's going to invite us to stay at her house or I don't know. She's like, well, that gentleman who's been sitting at that table all night, he wants to put you up in a hotel. Ah. Oh, how cool is that? So um, we meet this guy. Sebastian is his name. And he's, he's like, yeah, I want to put you guys up. This has been so fun. I've been loving it. And, you know. So he takes us to this Moven Pick, which is like the nicest hotel I've ever stayed in in my life. And it was like it's a four-star hotel. And we had like the breakfast spread of spreads. And we were like, oh, my gosh, it was crazy. And he's like, what time's your flight in the morning? And we told him, he's like, okay, cool, I'll pick you up at 9.30. And so he picks us up, and, and he takes us around, and he's, uh, <laughs> he's just, like, talking about how we could come back, and he could help us get a camper to tour through Germany and play music. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then he's like, oh, we still got time. Come on, let's go. And so he takes us into the airport, and he's like, let's, we'll, we'll have some lunch. And so he takes us into... Uh, the restaurant at the, at the airport, and he's feeding, he's like, whatever you want, just, you know, doesn't matter, just order. And uh, so we're talking to this guy, and I'm like, well, what is your story? And he said, well, I'm good at starting businesses. And I realized that I could help people by starting a business. So I started a travel company. And uh, so now I employ five families, and uh, and because of my business, I get all of these points, and I can just, you know, so last night didn't cost me a dime to put you guys up in the hotel. This meal is essentially free because I got all these points. But I'm good at it, you know, and I, and I thought, why not? I got this time. I'm good at starting businesses. I can help families. And I thought, that's miraculous. And it was so cool for me because I realized, here's a man who understands what he's good at, and he's putting into practice the gifts that the Lord has given him. And I don't know if he has any faith um, in a creator or not. We didn't ever have that conversation, but it was one of those connections where by the time we were leaving, he's like hugging us and he's crying. And it was just like, <laughs> this is a beautiful man. And I never was able to contact him again. He was like there and gone in my life. Just a little snapshot of a picture. But he gave me this picture of someone who has listened. So what am I good at? How can I 
how can I help other people? Hmm. I'm good at businesses. Then I'll start a business. I'll hire this family and that family. Oh, and that family and that one. And, and, and it goes on. And I was like, that's awesome. So good. So for what do we toil? The writer continues. This is what, I've have, uh, this is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. And so my prayer for myself and for all of you guys is that the Lord would bless you with being happy with the toil that he has given you, with the work of your hands, that you would be blessed with that, and that it would be not only a blessing to you, but you would be able to enjoy it because it creates a flourishing with people, right? I love it. And he continues, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaninglessness, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he is. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. <laughs> Do not all go to the same place. <laughs> to have everything and not be able to enjoy it. What kind of a frame of mind is a person like that in? What are they chasing after that would keep them from enjoying that? And do we find ourselves frustrated oftentimes with life where we're, we're like, I'm doing everything right. Why can't I enjoy life? It's not working out. And the first time that I really started to recognize something like this going on was when I worked for a nonprofit called Rachel's Challenge. And it was started by a guy named Daryl Scott, and he was the father of Rachel Scott, who was one of the first girls who was killed in the Columbine shooting back in 98. And um, so I'm working for this nonprofit, and we would go into schools all over the world. Well, not me, but I was in the United States. But they would go all over the place, and they're talk telling the story of Rachel Scott, because it's a pretty remarkable story. And um, I started to realize all of these equations that are being pushed at us, equations that tell us that uh, this is what it means to be successful, this is what it means to be a strong man, this is what it means to be a beautiful woman, this is what it means to be, you know, whatever, you, you can fill in the blank, but I started to realize there are people on either side of these equations, and a lot of them don't have any interest in you, but they do have an interest in the dollar that's in your pocket. And they will pump these equations in that says, you know, if you bring Jack Daniels to a party, you get the girl and the happy, you know, it's like, there are all these things, and I started to see this, and I started to realize, 
I'm being lied to. In our culture today, we have so many of these equations hitting us that are telling us, oh, this is what it means. This is what you should do. This is how you get a success. This is what, you know, if you want to be happy, you've got to get a mountain bike and a pair of skis and a fishing pole. And, you know, in Summit County, that's what it looks like, right? It's like, how do you know you're in Summit County is when the bike on your car is more expensive than your car. And it's like, why would we spend that much money on a piece of metal that rolls around and breaks your ribs like me last week? This doesn't make any sense, right? So we have these equations, and they, they just get thrown at us, and we're like, we just go along with it. Oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's what I need to do if I want to be happy and fulfilled. I guess I better get up and uh, ski in that cold snow. Um, you know, it's just weird. We do these things <clears throat> without thinking about it. And so when I was working with Rachel's Challenge, I started to realize, I think I need to slow down. I think I need to ask the questions, what does it mean to be me? What does it mean to have, uh, like, what does it mean for someone to be beautiful? Like, am I going to allow some bozo in L.A. to convince me that this is what it means to be beautiful? That doesn't make any sense. And so I had to start doing my own redefining, and I feel like that was something that the Lord was growing in my heart. I was like, oh, gosh. I was so far off the mark. This is crazy. So we come back to the beginning where we started in Ecclesiastes 5 where it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. And so I want to, you know, with... with these thoughts kind of percolating, I thought I'd just throw some ideas that I have at you, and um, hopefully they're helpful. So the first, the first thought that I had is that, one, God has put us here in this time and this place. And uh, I would quote um, out of Acts, this is Paul talking to the Athenians. He was saying that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and the earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So God has put us here in America in the 21st century. And he's asking us the same question he was asking Paul in the first century. Are you listening? What does it mean to be you? in the 21st century. And I feel like, you know, if we, if we take anything from Ecclesiastes, it's the idea that God has set before all of us the choice of life and death. In Deuteronomy, he says, This day I call the, heaven, the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life. 
so that you and your children may live. The idea of he has set us in this context that has these polarizing extremes and we can feel the tension between those. Are we just an animal? Is God going to judge the wicked? What am I doing? We feel that and we are in the middle of that choosing what side am I going to fall on because it makes a difference. If we don't actively make that decision, all right, I'm going that way because that one seems right to me. I believe that there's a God in heaven. I believe that he's going to judge. I believe that when he's loving, I believe, you know, we have to go through and we have to start mentally making assent to what it is that we believe. And it forms us and it shapes us and it grows us. And if we don't do that, we're going to end up just chasing our tail. And it's important that we go through that process. So that's my first thought. And... I I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He was saying, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. It's not because I can see the sun, but it's because of the sun that I can see everything else. And so the idea of drawing near and listening to God is that idea of, Lord, shape my heart, clean my eyes, so that I can see clearly, so that when I do see the rest of the world, I see it well, I see it right. If we don't go down that road of of saying, Lord, help me to see straight, we're going to be, you know, looking at the world bent and sideways and upside down, and and it's not going to make any sense. So that's 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 another thought I would throw at you. Another one is this. Paul, in a letter to Timothy, he says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. John Newton, who also shared this sentiment, he said, Whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angered, nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference between me and them, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart, and under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. So the idea of, as we approach the world and we're asking these questions, we end up on the opposite sides of the fence from people. I know I have this experience in my world now, especially in the world that we live in today, where, you know, we have this political division and we're asking questions about what's true and what's not true. Is that science good? Is this science good? Is that guy a wacko? Is this guy sane? Who knows? How do we answer these questions? But as we're going through that, we have to be aware that given the right circumstances, given the right pressures, I could easily be that person who's pointing his finger at me on the other side of the fence. I have the seeds of every evil wickedness in my heart. Given the right pressures, I could easily be that person. So as I go through and I'm wrestling through these questions of, 
how do I walk well? I need to remember that these people with whom I'm interacting, Jesus died for them too. And he loves them and he has plans for them. And so as we walk through this, we need to keep people in their equality. We're all image bearers. And we need to keep ideas in their hierarchy because ideas are where the differentiation happens, right? It's like not all ideas are the same, but all people are created by the Lord. And so if we keep that in mind, it's going to keep us humble. It's going to keep us moving with people in the best way that we can in hopes that there is unity. Out of the many, one is the great, the great uh, hope. Then a final thought. <clears throat> there was a, a writer uh, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who talked often about cheap grace, the idea of cheap grace. And I feel like this is something that uh, is captured in that idea of one who approaches the throne of God without any reverence, someone who approaches with just a flippancy that's like, oh, Jesus died on the cross, cool. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can just go and uh, do... And they're not paying attention. They're not listening. And they go about their business. And so, forgive the, uh, the length of this quote, but listen in your hearts. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer talking about cheap grace versus costly grace. Cheap grace means... Grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut price. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again 
and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what a cost. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And so the idea of listening, the idea like we're going to be taking communion here in just a few minutes, and the idea of Remembering what the Lord did, he, he set an example for us to follow. The idea of grace infusing our lives is the idea of God reorienting who we are so that we can see what we've been made to do. When I was newly married, I uh, had a wonderful opportunity of working for a depressed, hypercritical woman in her house. I was painting and doing whatever odd job she had. And she was so critical of me. Like, I, I went in there and I was all happy-go-lucky. Yeah, I'm good at this. I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm worth my wage because I feel like I do a good job. And she, every day, she was so just evil in the way that she would nitpick and point. And what about this? Did you scratch this? Where's this? It's missing, I think, you know. And she was like hyper paranoid. And, and after about two weeks of this uh, being around this woman, I started to realize that I was like becoming more timid. I didn't want to take any chances. I'll just kind of, you know, I was afraid to be me. But it was such a good thing for me to experience because I realized if I feel like this around this woman, if she can make me feel afraid to just be me and to do what I think I can do well, how do I affect my wife that I am now married to? Does she feel free around me? Can she make a mistake around me? Is she afraid that I'm going to berate her because she doesn't measure up to some standard that I have in my head? And I started to realize that I create this space around me. And, and I realized when people come into my sphere, I want them to have freedom. I want them to feel joy. I want them to have a, a, a place to breathe and to grow into the person that the Lord made them to be. And if I am sitting there pointing my finger and like berating them because they're not, they're not measuring up to some equation that's been thrust into my brain by somebody else, what chance do they have? And so I started to defend this space. I want to be a good place for people to be in. And that's 
been something that has been with me ever since. And I don't say that I do it well, but it's something that I'm conscious of. It's like, ah, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good, you know, the spheres, they just go out. So the Lord has given us these, this time to do these things. He's given us work to do. And if we're not paying attention, if we're not listening, we're chasing after wind. So it's funny, I, I started the story by talking about getting lost on a bike, and there was one particular day um, I was lost, and I saw a woman walking on the side of the road, and I, I pulled up next to her, and she didn't speak English, I didn't speak German, so I just got out my map, and I pointed, I was like, I want to go here. And she's like, oh, yeah, you want to go that way. Great, Cool. I can start riding again. So I started riding, and about 20 minutes later, this is, you know, I'm riding my bike. I'm pulling a trailer that weighs like 70 pounds. And 20 minutes later, I see a sign, and I'm like, ah, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going exactly the wrong direction. She made me go the wrong direction. And I was so grumbling. And so I turn around and I start riding back the other direction. Now I'm really just torqued, right? Because I just spent 20 minutes going the wrong way. Spending all that energy. And I (laughs) rode back into the town where I'd met this woman and it just so happened that she happened to be walking, this time the other direction because she had been going the right direction, did whatever she needed to do, and now she was going the other way. And I see her and I just gave her one of my most scathing, crusty looks that I could muster on my face. And I kept writing. And as I think about this experience, I'm thinking, was it such a bad thing to go in the wrong direction? And I think it's a good question to ask because sometimes we're afraid to go in any direction. Oh, I don't want to choose because what if it's the wrong direction? You got to choose. You got to listen, and when you feel like you have an answer, you got to put your energy behind the pedals and make the bike go. And if you end up going the wrong direction, you find out, ah, I'm going the wrong direction. The things that I'm doing are hurting my wife or my kids. They're, they're making me a menace to society. I'm going the wrong direction. Is that a bad thing to find out? No, it just means you know a direction that you don't want to go again. And it's only bad if you figure that out and refuse to turn around. The idea of asking forgiveness is that idea of turning. Of saying, I'm wrong. I'm going the wrong direction. Time to turn the ship around and start heading in the right direction and with all the energy I can muster. And so as we, you know, we walk through life and we're walking through this prickly time, draw near to listen. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, to lead you. Give him the green light to move in your hearts to do whatever he needs to do to get your attention. And then follow. 
And it's that path that you get on and you can start pedaling with all your worth and to make a space that's safe to put your hands to the plow. May the Lord bless your hands. May he bless the work that you do. Let's pray. Father, help us to draw near to listen. Help us to be silent and to make that time, Father, to hear you. Help us to eliminate the distractions, undo the, uh, these equations that are in our hearts, Father, that have been put there not by you but by someone else that ultimately are false. And replace them, Lord, with good, true, right things that come from you, Father. Build in us a vision for the world that is built on you and your truth. And in the process of that, Father, if we do need to turn around, give us the courage to say, I'm wrong. I have been wrong, and I am sorry and to turn and to start walking in a different direction. And as we walk, Father, may the people that encounter us, that enter our sphere, Father, may they be, may they experience your peace, may they experience your freedom. Pray this in your name. Amen.